This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. It is Thanksgiving week, and we want to celebrate that here on Church Life Today. I'm going to do a different kind of episode to mark this occasion. This episode is called Eucharist Means Thanksgiving. And what I want to do is share with you quotes, passages, and even a poem that invite us to deepen our appreciation for and our wonder about the gift of Christ in the Eucharist as an exchange of thanksgiving. Now, I know, of course, that the holiday Thanksgiving is not itself about the Eucharist, but this civic holiday is probably the closest in character to our religious holidays, and all the more because it is a feast dedicated to giving thanks. For those who revere and adore the sacrament of the Eucharist, we know that being transformed by that particular and unique thanksgiving should shape and transform our entire lives. So I hope you will spend the next half hour or so with me and a few guests who are not joining us by phone, they're not joining us in the studio, but they're joining us through their meditations and prayers about the Eucharist meaning Thanksgiving. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo of the McGrath Institute for Church Life at Notre Dame. Thank you for joining me. So we're going to begin with a passage, a quotation, that was initially written by the theologian Hans Urs von Balthasar, but I came across it in a little book of collected meditations by Joseph Ratzinger, later Pope Benedict the 16th. The book is called The God of Jesus Christ, and it is, as I said, Meditations on the Triune God. So here is this quotation. Again, it's Hansers von Balthasar being quoted by Joseph Ratzinger, and it goes like this. Eucharistia means thanksgiving. How wonderful that Jesus gives thanks by endlessly offering himself and making a gift of himself to God and to men. Whom does he thank? Most certainly, he thanks God the Father, the model and ultimate source of all giving. But he surely also thanks the poor sinners who are willing to receive him, who let him enter under their unworthy roof. Is there anyone else whom he thanks? I would say that he thanks the poor maid from whom he received this flesh and blood through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit. What does Jesus learn from his mother? He learns to say, yes, fiat. Not just any yes, but a yes that goes even farther without ever getting weary. Everything that you desire, my God, behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is the Catholic prayer that Jesus learned from his human mother, from the Catholica Mater, who was in the world before him and who was inspired by God to be the first to speak this word of the new and eternal covenant. Eucharistia means thanksgiving. Friends, as we take in this meditation, there's a remarkable stirring set of ideas or notions or appreciations that are going on here. 
Christ seeks in the incarnation to receive a place among us. He seeks, think about this, the Son of God seeks to receive a place. Yes, of course, we read in the prologue to John's gospel that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but the incarnation was no break-in, right? It's not a home invasion. The Lord of the cosmos waits to be welcomed. And so in this stirring little meditation by Hans Urs von Balthasar that Pope Benedict XVI is drawing our attention to, he's wondering aloud, whom does Christ thank? Of course, he always thanks his heavenly Father, but he thanks poor sinners who receive him, and perhaps most of all among us creatures, he thanks his mother. He thanks his mother who first said yes, who first made a dwelling place for him, who allowed him to enter in, who gave him all that she had, her flesh, her blood, that he received and then later offered. And if we think about all of us poor sinners, if you will, who receive him in the Eucharist, we do what she first did. We give him, the Son of God, a place to dwell. We welcome him into our flesh and blood as he offers his flesh and blood to us. Let's think about that a little bit. There's an exchange here, isn't there? In some strange way, it's not just a one-way gift. It's an exchange offered in thanksgiving. Christ is the eternal thanksgiving to the Father. He gives thanks to the Father, and we give thanks to the Father for him. But he, Christ, also gives thanks to us for receiving him. And his Father thanks us for receiving his Son. Maybe we don't dwell with or ponder that as much as we can. It's a little bit, I don't know, destabilizing, isn't it? To think of the Lord of the cosmos thanking us for receiving him in the supreme gift that he gives to us. In any event, I think here from this first meditation, this first passage, we're sort of brought back over and over again to Mary's yes. Mary's yes is repeated in every Eucharist. Fiat let it be. Let it be done to me according to your word. I receive you according to your gift. The Eucharist, in echo and imitation of Mary's reception of the word, is a celebration and a sacrifice of thanks. In any event, that's the first meditation on Thanksgiving and the Eucharist that I wanted to draw our attention to. I'm Leonard Lorenzo, and of course, this is Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. On today's episode, we're dedicating it to the Eucharist as Thanksgiving. And we're doing that, of course, in observance of the Thanksgiving holiday. I don't have another guest in the studio or on the phone with me. My guests are a number of folks who have written meditations and prayers on the Eucharist as Thanksgiving. So we're listening together to those quotes and those prayers. They're going to come from saints. They're going to come from poets, from theologians, from mystics. We're listening to how the Eucharist is an exchange of thanks And that exchange happens in deep and oftentimes unexpected ways. So let's move on to a second passage. The second passage comes from St. Therese of Lisieux. I'm just going to read this to you, and then maybe we'll say a few things about it. St. Therese writes this, When I am preparing for Holy Communion, 
I picture my soul as a piece of land, and I beg the Blessed Virgin to remove from it any rubbish that would prevent it from being free. Then I ask her to set up a huge tent worthy of heaven, adorning it with her own jewelry. Finally, I invite all the angels and saints to come and conduct a magnificent concert there. It seems to me that when Jesus descends into my heart, he is content to find himself so well received, and I, too, am content. Well, this is just so like Therese of Lisieux, isn't it? This sort of beautiful, shining, almost bubbly reflection on receiving the Lord, this almost unbound joy at the gift of Christ for her. It can sound, I think, maybe even a little bit childish and a little bit playful. And you know what? Maybe it should. That as she prepares to receive Holy Communion, she says, she imagines that her soul is like a piece of land. And on this piece of land, she wants to construct or put up a great dwelling place, a tent, where she can receive the Lord with all the hospitality she can muster. But she knows that she can't muster all the hospitality she needs on her own. So she asks the Blessed Mother to come and help her prepare this tent, this dwelling place for her Lord, for Mary's son, and to adorn this dwelling place with Mary's own finest jewelry. You can always imagine a child running around with her mother's necklaces and earrings and bracelets and whatever she can find and just pinning them up to the wall so they shine and shimmer in the light, something like that. And then she asks all the angels and saints to come and to conduct a magnificent concert so the Lord will be most welcome in her heart and in her soul. Okay, this is the childish Therese, isn't it? But as with all things that Therese says and prays and gives over to us, there's always a hidden depth. And I think there's a hidden depth here, too. She's asking, isn't she, to prepare a fitting dwelling place for the Lord. You know, I mentioned a little earlier the prologue to John's gospel, right? John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. You may know that the more literal translation of that verse is something like, and the word became flesh and tabernacled among us, pitched his tent. That's the dwelling place, right? What Therese is doing here, it seems, is even offering a little commentary on the beginning of John's gospel, that what happens there in the great sweep of the incarnation, in that great move of heaven to earth, where the word becomes flesh, she sees as happening in a small, almost microcosmic way every time she receives Holy Communion, that the word is coming to dwell in her flesh, again, to take up dwelling place in her, with her, The flesh of the Lord united to her own living flesh. The blood of the Lord united to her blood. That also has an echo, a resonance in the Old Testament all throughout. But especially if we were to look in the book of Exodus. As you may know, in the book of Exodus, when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai, he's of course going to receive the commandments and come down with the tablets. But the main thing really that he receives when he goes up Mount Sinai is a vision or a set of instructions from the Lord about how the Israelite people dwelling below should construct a fitting dwelling place for their God to come and dwell among them. This dwelling place is a tabernacle, which has within it the Ark of the Covenant, and atop the Ark of the Covenant is the mercy seat where God will come to dwell with his people and they shall be united to him. 
And what the Lord tells Moses is that the materials that are to be used to construct this tabernacle, this dwelling place for the Lord, are to be all of those jewels, the jewelry, the gold, the fineries, that the Israelites have taken from the Egyptians as they made their way out of slavery. But here's the really key thing. The Lord says to Moses that this tabernacle will only be constructed out of their own generous hearts. That's what it says, out of their own generous hearts. In other words, the people are to generously construct a place for the Lord to come and dwell among them. Well, as we know, even from sort of a cursory understanding or memory of the book of Exodus, they don't quite do that the first time, do they? They take all of those jewels and all that gold and they construct an image, an idol, out of their own imaginings. They fill in the place where the Lord is supposed to come and dwell among them with this golden calf that they now worship, the work of their own hands. But the Lord does not relent. He, of course, chastises them and punishes them and sets them straight through the ministry of Moses. But he gives again to Moses in very patient and clear ways the instructions, the image, the designs for the tabernacle. And the Lord says to Moses again, it is out of generous hearts that this tabernacle shall be constructed. And lo and behold, by the end of the book of Exodus, this indeed is what the Israelites have done. They have constructed a tabernacle out of all the finest jewelry with their own skill, but most importantly, with their own generosity to prepare a place for the Lord to come and dwell among them. Therese of Lisieux, childish and bubbly as she sounds at times, is imagining something no less dramatic and no less significant than that. She herself is seeking to construct a dwelling place with all her mom's jewelry, right? All that gold and perhaps the pearls and the diamonds to use all of that to create a fitting and wonderful dwelling place for the Lord to come and dwell in her midst today. Remember at the end of that passage, though, there's something else going on. She says, It seems to me that when Jesus descends into my heart, he is content to find himself so well received, and I too am content. Here's the little something extra that's going on here. She, Therese, is hinting that the Lord himself is pleased with being received in such a kind and thoughtful manner. Think about that. The Lord himself is pleased. He's content. He rejoices in this kind of welcome. Again, maybe we can even dare to think of the Lord giving thanks for this preparation, for this hospitality, for setting the table in this way, for constructing a dwelling in this way, for the work of preparation to receive him as a gift. There's an exchange of thanksgiving here between the host and the guest. When we think of the Eucharist, we call the consecrated host the host, right? He's the host. But here it seems it happens the other way too. Therese is the host, and the Lord who is coming to dwell with her is being received as the most honored guest, the guest of her soul. That's our second passage. That one comes from Therese of Lisieux from her story of a soul. Now, few of us I think, are Therese of Lisieux, let alone the Blessed Mother. We do not regularly, if ever, prepare for the Lord as well as we should. I was recently reminded of that in a very sort of deep and almost visceral way as I came across, once again, a poem by George Herbert 
that reckons with the unworthiness of those of us who shall receive the living God. I came across this poem again in just a wonderful book by Father Robert Imbelli called Rekindling the Christic Imagination. He quotes a portion of George Herbert's poem called Love, Love 3, which has, I think, a keen sense for the unworthiness of those who are put in the position to receive our living God. So I'm grateful to Father Imbelli, who is just himself a generous and remarkably brilliant man, for bringing this poem back to my attention. And now, since I'm sharing it to all of our attention, have a listen to this poem. Love bade me welcome, yet my soul drew back, guilty of dust and sin. But quick-eyed love, observing me grow slack from my first entrance in, drew nearer to me, sweetly questioning if I lacked anything. A guest, I answered, worthy to be here. Love said, you shall be he. I, the unkind, ungrateful, ah, my dear, I cannot look on thee. Love took my hand, and smiling did reply, who made the eyes but I? Truth, Lord, but I have marred them. Let my shame go where it doth deserve. And know you not, says love, who bore the blame? My dear, then I will serve. You must sit down, says love, and taste my meat. So I did sit and eat. However and whenever we are lacking as hosts to receive the Lord as our guest, what does George Herbert seem to stumble upon? He stumbles upon this magnificent fact, this magnificent truth, that the Lord himself will be ready to serve us. If we think to what Therese of Lisieux is saying, that in preparation for Holy Communion, she, and I suppose by association we who listen to her, ought to prepare this magnificent dwelling place for the Lord to come to dwell. That's not always the case, is it? We often have to reckon with our own unworthiness to receive the Lord under our roof. But who makes us worthy to receive him as a guest? He himself does. He makes us worthy to receive him as a guest, and he does so, strangely, George Herbert seems to be suggesting, by serving us. We ought to serve him, but he teaches us how to serve him by repeatedly and continuously serving us. He makes us his guests in the Eucharist, and by so doing, he slowly transforms us to become hospitable to him. It's hard to exhaust that thought, isn't it? My goodness, that would be hard to imagine. And maybe you don't have to begin by imagining it in order to approach the Eucharist. Maybe the main thing is to approach the Eucharist, to let him come to us. And by repeatedly doing that, we will slowly learn how to receive him better. Maybe we'll work our way up to being Therese of Lisieux, and perhaps in the fullness of time to the graciousness of the Blessed Mother. There's a kind of earthiness and practicality to what George Herbert is musing on here. Ain't that something? You have to go to poetry to find that kind of earthiness and practicality to woo us into this kind of hospitality to receive the Lord.
We'll have a couple more of these meditations, but let's take a quick break and remind people what we're listening to. Well, I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today on Redeemer Radio. Today's episode is dedicated to the Eucharist as Thanksgiving and observance of the Thanksgiving holiday. We're listening together to quotes and prayers from saints and poets, theologians, mystics, about how the Eucharist is an exchange of thanks in deep and oftentimes unexpected ways. So I have just a couple more of these meditations to share. The next one comes from St. Catherine of Siena. It's probably somewhere between a prayer and a poem and a theological meditation. Here it is for you. O boundless charity, just as you gave us yourself, holy God and holy man, so you left us all of yourself as food, so that while we are pilgrims in this life, we might not collapse in our weariness, but be strengthened by you, heavenly food. O mercenary people, and what has your God left you? He has left you himself, holy God and holy man, hidden under the whiteness of bread. O fire of love, was it not enough to gift us with creation in your image and likeness, and to create us anew to grace in your Son's blood, without giving us yourself as food, the whole of divine being, the whole of God? What drove you? Nothing but your charity, mad with love as you are. Again, that's St. Catherine of Siena. My goodness, she's marveling, isn't she, at the reckless abandon of God in the Eucharist. This God who holds nothing back in this gift of the Eucharist. It's a gift upon a gift upon a gift, wholly unwarranted, unanticipated, unexpected, unmeasured, and yet an overflowing fullness of giving. It's just like waves upon waves of generosity and superabundance. I think if we pause to consider, as Catherine herself is pausing to consider, we would be overwhelmed with thanks for all that is given. What does she say? Let's just slowly, stanza by stanza, go through this again. I won't read everything again, but just to remind us, he gives us himself, holy God, holy man, as food for our pilgrimage in this life, so that we do not collapse in weariness, but that we're strengthened not just by earthly food, but here by heavenly food. That we who are this mercenary people, who sort of are fickle in our desires, who move about, who change our allegiances, what is God left for us who are desiring of probably no more than scraps? Well, he just left us himself, right? Holy God and holy man hidden under the whiteness of bread. She marvels like, wasn't it enough that you gave us all of creation and you created us in your image and likeness? That was enough, wasn't it? Well, I guess not, because in your grace, you gave us your son's blood and you gave us your food, yourself as food, the whole of your divine being, the whole of yourself as God. What could possibly have been your motivation, Lord? What made you do this? And her final answer here seems to say, nothing made you do this. It is only the action of your charity that makes this gift upon gift upon gift that we receive in the Eucharist. All right then, friends, let's come then to our final meditation on the Eucharist, meaning thanksgiving. This one, I think, has to do with a spirit of hospitality. How about that? It comes from the theologian and liturgist, 
Jean Corbon, who you may know is the primary author of the fourth pillar of the Catechism on prayer. But I take this excerpt from his magnificent book, Wellspring of Worship. It's on the Eucharist as Sacrament of Sacraments. It goes like this. The Spirit opens our eyes in order that we may recognize the Lord. He gathers up our hearts so that we may receive the Word. He intensifies our hunger so that we may be filled with the bread of life. He makes us die to ourselves so that we may rise with Christ. He becomes our joy so that we may become the Father's joy. He breathes through us so that we may give life to our brothers and sisters. This meditation, which comes in the sort of set of meditations that Jean Corbon has on the Eucharist as Sacrament of Sacraments, this meditation has to do with the work and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who unites us to Christ in the Eucharist. There's a Spirit, the Spirit of God involved in this exchange. What is this exchange? Well, Corban seems to be suggesting to us, leading us to recognize how in the Eucharist, what Christ himself is, we ourselves become. Hold on to that. What Christ himself is, we ourselves become. Think about what we just heard. He is saying that by his body, Christ's body, we become bread for others. By his death, Christ's death, we become life for others in our sacrifices. By his joy, Christ's joy, we enter into the Father's joy. And by his breath, Christ's breath, our lungs fill with new life for the world. It seems that the work of the Spirit is to make every Eucharist into a true exchange, the sharing of gifts, this becoming one in union. Christ receives everything from us, receives our lives, our flesh, our blood, the meager gifts that we bring forward. He receives everything from us and unites all of that, all of us, in love with his Father. And on the other side, We receive everything from Christ, who becomes our life now and evermore. Eucharist means thanksgiving. Well, that's what I've got for us today. I hope you've enjoyed today's show. Let me just really quickly roll some credits. The passage from Hans Urs von Balthasar, quoted by Joseph Ratzinger, comes from The God of Jesus Christ, Meditations on the Triune God, which is published by Ignatius Press. The passage by Therese of Lisieux comes from chapter 8 of her spiritual autobiography, Story of a Soul. The poem by George Herbert was quoted by Father Robert M. Belly in his beautiful book, Rekindling the Christic Imagination, Theological Meditations for the New Evangelization, published by Liturgical Press. The Meditation on Divine Charity by Catherine of Siena, I actually quoted in my forthcoming book, Turn to the Lord, which is also published by Liturgical Press. And the passage about the Holy Spirit comes from Jean Corbon's unbelievable text, Wellspring of Worship, published again by Ignatius Press. 
I am going to make each of these passages available online in our McGrath Institute for Church Life blog. You can find that at mcgrathblog.nd.edu. We'll title the little post, Eucharist Means Thanksgiving. And until next time, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. This Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services to save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.